Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Reverend Steve Andrews. We continue with Numbers chapter 24. When Balaam saw that it pleased Yahweh to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that Yahweh has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt, and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces, and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched. He lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have blessed them these three times. Therefore now flee to your own place. I said I will certainly honor you, but Yahweh has held back from you honor. And Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of Yahweh, to do either good or bad of my own will. What Yahweh speaks, that I will speak. And now behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed, Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Then he looked on Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. And he looked on the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, Enduring is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned when Ashur takes you away captive. And then he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from Katim, and shall afflict Ashur and Eber, and he too shall come to utter destruction. Then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. This is the word of the Lord. So today we finally have the conclusion of this um, really back and forth between Balak and Balaam, as Balak king of the Moabites, has called upon Balaam, a diviner, to curse God's people so that he could overthrow them, overcome them, that he could fight against them. He's terrified of them. And so he seeks worldly spiritual power 
to weaken Israel to the point where he can fight them. And as you see in the text, he gets really angry with this diviner Balaam for not cursing the people like he was calling on him to do, but instead blessing them. Instead of weakening them, if anything, he might have made them stronger. We would look at it and say he has simply spoken the words of God, which is what he himself says to give him that credit. Um, he acknowledges that in that middle paragraph there, starting in verse 12. You know, uh, I would not be able to go beyond the word of Yahweh to do either good or bad of my own will. What Yahweh speaks, that will I speak. And that's what he does. And so there's something to be said for that. Again, Bala Balaam doesn't doesn't come across as one of God's people in any way, shape, or form until perhaps something changes in this chapter. So we've had the twofold account. Balaam has spoken with Yahweh twice. And now, rather than turning towards his regular way of divining and doing whatever he does, Balaam simply looks over the, God, over the people of the Lord. He, he looks to the wilderness, which is where Israel was. And verse 2 says, the Spirit of God came upon him. This is one to pause and talk about. Where do we see that kind of language in Scripture? Where do, where do we hear that the Spirit of God comes upon someone? Both in Scripture, but even now. How does the Spirit of God come upon you is a question to talk about with your kids. So in terms of Scripture, I mean, you can think of Jesus' baptism here. Right, that the Spirit of God descended out of heaven like a dove and, and descended into Jesus. The Spirit of God was upon him. You can think of Pentecost and the, the apostles who have the Spirit of God poured out upon them, and all of a sudden they start speaking the word of the Lord. Maybe that can bring us to think back to earlier in the book. Hmm, I wouldn't look that one up when Moses asks the Lord, to essentially divide up the workload that um, speaking for the Lord all by himself is essentially too much for him to do. And so he asks Yahweh to lighten the load, assist him. Let's see if I can find that. Elders appointed aid Moses, that's back in chapter 11. I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. So, yeah. Similar language here in the book of Numbers, uh, not quite as specifically stated as it is right here in this text, but the connection today for us as the church is baptism, that in the waters of baptism, God pours out his spirit upon us. He's poured out his spirit upon you, claiming you as his own. So by all intents and purposes, verse two here could be telling us that Balaam has repented of his wicked ways. And that he's now one of God's people. I don't know that for certain. But this is the most positive kind of language we've seen about him so far. And that's a good thing. And we can be thankful if he did indeed come to faith. So that brings us into what he says in verse 3. That his eye is open and he hears the word of God. In the past, that was divination. You know, as he's working and dabbling in dark arts to to hear from the, the spiritual realm and whatever things they might be into as they worship lots of false gods. But here, this, this sounds more like faith, right? His eyes have been opened. 
and he hears the word of God. He sees the vision of the Almighty. He's speaking for Yahweh. This is truly prophetic that God, God uses a prophet to speak his word to his people. God is using Balaam now to speak his word. Balaam looks out over the people and he's admittedly impressed, right? Uh, how lovely are your tents, your encampments. He praises the beauty of God's creation and he, he compares Israel to that creation. And, you know, not just the beauty of it, but the, the size of it, right? The, the palm groves stretch afar. It's an example of that. And then he acknowledges God is the one who cares for them. That's what we're getting in verse 7. Um, and that God will exalt him. God will lift up his servant Israel. And uh, you get the reference to Agag. Agag is the king of the Amalekites in the future who's going to be defeated by King Saul. So this is, this is hundreds of years out, right? So... 1406 is when they enter the promised land. King Saul doesn't come until around a thousand, a few years before the year 1000 BC. So this is about 400 years time gap here for when Saul will come in 1 Samuel chapter 15 to kill Agag. And then you get verse 8. God brings him out of Egypt, so salvation, and is for him like the horns of a wild ox, a reference to power. Note that's not Israel's power. Balaam acknowledging that Yahweh fights for Israel. That's a big deal here in this text. So he's going to eat up the nations, his adversaries, breaking their bones, piercing them with arrows. So this is God-giving, God-given, right? It's his power. He's the one doing it. He's giving Israel victory over its enemies. Verse 9, he crouched. He lay down like a lion, and like a lioness who will rouse him up. So we had this yesterday in chapter 23. We talked about this same picture of the lioness, the lion and its prey, as the, the lion being strong, ruling perhaps, and conquering, and devouring its prey, its, its enemy. Here, this puts an additional in, impact on that, an additional idea here. Not only does the lion get up and chase its prey, that's the only thing that's going to make the lion get up. In other words, there's nothing. The lion is prey to no one else. There's not another animal that when it, the lion sees it, the lion will run away in fear. That's going to be Israel. That they will devour the enemies that they have and that there won't be any enemies that they're afraid of. Oh, if only that were true for more than but a glimpse of, of history. I mean, Israel falters in this one quite a bit in the, in the years to come, and their kings are constantly struggling to be faithful. But ultimately, this is going to be true for us, right? You can talk to your children about, about this from God's perspective. So instead of thinking of verse 9 about Israel, think about it with God. You know, God defeats his enemies, and God does not fear anyone. There's no one that can make God rise up. So, God rise up. God rose God, as you think of Jesus rising from the dead. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. But God crouched. He lay down. God lay down like a lion. Who will rouse him up? Of whom is the Lord afraid? And that can help us talk about sin, death, and the devil, and how Jesus has conquered all of these things, and he has done so for us. That beautiful gift. 
The next paragraph, we talked about it a little bit already. Balak is angry with Balaam. He strikes his hands together. Um, I don't know exactly what that posture looks like. It's almost like a clap, um, but it's an expression of anger that we can tell from the context. I called you to curse. You have blessed. Three times. Well, the three times thing is Balak's own fault. Balak should have stopped after the first attempt, right? Um, But he kept going thinking that he could somehow get a different answer. And that, that just wasn't going to happen. So before Balaam leaves, he gives one last oracle, one last word of God to Balak. And that is the result. That oracle is what's going to be the outcome for your people. So the Moabites, who in a sense, because their king hired Balaam, they've hired Balaam. What does God say of them? It begins the same as the previous one did at the start of the chapter. Same kind of words in the first couple of verses there. And then he, he says in verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. That's a reference to time. This is a prophecy that somewhere out in the future, um, Balaam can see it from the Lord, but it's not close by. So it's not going to happen, you know, tomorrow. Um, it's not going to happen likely within Balak's lifetime, the references that are coming here are going to be much more further out. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter out of Israel. Um, Star and scepter together referring to royalty. With a star, you think of the authority for a a king comes from above, comes from God. And a scepter is the staff by which they rule. Um, So you've got those words together. And then you get that they'll crush Moab and Sheth and Edom. And that credit's going to go to David. Not the first king of Israel, but Israel's second king will have the, the victory over those enemies. And then one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Dominion is the original calling that God gave to man back in Genesis 1, verse 28. There it was positive, uh, a loving, like a caring rule over creation. Here it's negative, uh, a violent rule. Uh, that will come upon the earth for their opposition, their rebellion against God. Now you could look at verse 17 and talk to your children. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And see if they can go beyond King David. Who is that star that comes from Jacob and the scepter that comes from Israel that rules over us even now? That would be then taking this forward to Jesus, to our our king who rules over all of creation and does so for us. You don't want to get too, too much here, but you almost think even of your kids might mention as a star, you know, you think of a star in scripture, their minds might go to Bethlehem and to the Christmas account. So that could be a good thing. Uh, Verse 20, Amalek is the first of the nations destroyed. Uh, That's true of what Israel does. You see that in Exodus 17. Uh, The Kenites traveled with the Midianites, so there's a connection to that. Uh, Balak, king of Moab, had called the Midianites to do this with him, so there's punishment coming across them now as well. And then, you know, verse 22, God's judgment is going to find them. He's going to use Assyria to take them captive. But before he's done, verse 23, 
who shall live when God does this? Who can escape God's judgment might be another way to phrase that. In verse 24, even that great Ashur, Assyria, is going to face God's judgment. He too shall come to utter destruction. And that comes true when Babylon destroys Assyria. I don't know the year on that one, but somewhere between 722 and 587 uh, BC. So that's even further out as Balaam has this opportunity to, again, serve as a prophet of the Lord, at least temporarily. And then he goes back to his own people. Balak also goes his own way.